This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 83. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I welcome back Tobias Carlisle, founder, editor, and author of The Acquirer's Multiple. We are excited to announce that Tobias will be our keynote speaker at our upcoming conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase 2019, April 30 through May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. I wanted to take the opportunity to catch up with him, chat about his background, as well as do a deeper dive into how both of his books, both Deep Value and Acquires Multiple, can help you develop your investing thesis and philosophy further. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 83, and please enjoy my interview with Tobias Carlisle, founder, editor, and author of The Acquires Multiple. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2019 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30th to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 30 to May 2nd, 2019 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you for joining me today on the program. We're doing this live from our studios in Los Angeles, and with me today is a familiar guest, Mr. Tobias Carlisle, who is the founder and editor of The Acquirer's Multiple. Tobias, welcome back to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bobby. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different for us. You know, we're actually recording this on, on video, so uh, for those who don't listen to this on uh, on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, you'll actually also be able to watch this video on our YouTube channel. And... Uh, Getting right into it, you know, to, to start off, you know, for those who may not have heard uh, either of our past interviews, you know, what is your background and, and how did you get into the wide world of finance and investing? 
I was a lawyer. I started out in, uh, in Australia working in mergers and acquisitions. Um, it's just the early 2000s was the um, sort of the end of the dot-com boom and the beginning of activism, although we didn't know they were activists at that time. They didn't really have a name for them at that time. So I, I, I had started thinking that I would be um, working on IPOs of tech companies because that, that was what was happening all through, mm-hmm. all through college. Um, I started work April 2000, which was the top of the dot-com peak. Mm-hmm. The market for IPOs dried up completely. And all of a sudden there were these companies that were very cheap but had a lot of cash on the balance sheet. And they were attracting um, like these 80s corporate raiders or these guys who were trying to get little positions and trying to lobby to get the money paid out or get control and then use the money inside the, the company to, um, to buy other companies, sort of like a daisy chain of, of these things. Um, we didn't know what they were called, co- they weren't called activists, they were sort of the same faces that had been around in the 80s who'd come back. And it just sort of turned into a, a job of doing activism defence for bigger companies and um, so that's sort of how I got interested in it. I was approached because I had a little bit of a specialization in tech m and I was approached by, um, we had a firm in San Francisco and I transferred over to that firm in San, Fran- San Francisco working for big tech companies doing mm-hmm. bolt-on mergers and acquisitions and things like that. Um, I had listed a company in Australia that was uh, uh, they dark fiber optic cable and um, we I started working for those guys, doing acquisitions of little um, cable companies. We built a subsea cable, eventually got taken over. It was one of the best performed IPOs um, of the day. Uh, sold out of my position in it. The, the company was sort of taken over and I started working in an activist fund. Um, as an analyst, just sort of learning the ropes, I wanted to understand um, you know how they could apply pressure when something was undervalued. How you look, what sort of undervaluation you looked for, and I found that whole process fascinating. But it was just difficult to square it up to the way that Warren Buffett invests, who was my um, introduction to investing. Uh, you know, Buffett famously looks for wonderful companies mm-hmm. at fair prices. Um, activists certainly don't look for wonderful companies. They're all bad businesses, and the dot coms were a good example of that. They were bad businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, basically, they had no business. They were just right. spending money on marketing. They were losing money on their product. Nothing.com, yeah. Right. No, no, no business there at all. Exactly right. Nothing.com. They raised a lot of money, so they had a lot of balance sheet value. So if you use like that traditional Buffett approach to valuing something, mm-hmm. um, you come up with a negative value. Right. And, that, and that's probably appropriate. They had negative value. That were negative value companies, but the balance sheet had value. So get control, get control of the cash, try and turn that into something. And I found that process fascinating. So um, then I started to research it a little bit more. And um, that research, well, I knew that um, I'd read Joel Greenblatt's book, The Little Book That Beats the Market, Mm -hmm. which is a great book. Um, Basically, the idea is that he takes Buffett's um, wonderful companies at fair prices and he works out the quantitative expression of that so it's two factors wonderful companies means high return on invested capital um, which is a profitability metric tells you how much money the assets of the business make that are actually employed in the business and then on the other hand there's a valuation metric which is EBIT on enterprise value or operating income EBIT on uh, enterprise value and that tells you how cheap the company is once you back out the cash and add in the debt and a few other things like that together that beats the market which is a kind of an extraordinary thing because it's hard to do that so we um, 
So I wrote about it on my little website, greenback.com, which is just a free blog. Said I'd like to write a book about um, that phenomenon because I didn't really see anybody else writing about it. And uh, I partnered with a guy by the name of Wes Graves, PhD student at Booth, which is probably the best quant, uh, quant university in the States. We took every industry or academic research into any fundamental factor we could find mm -hmm. and tested it in a system that we'd built to see what had worked, what was sort of what stopped working, mm -hmm. what made sense. So we, we basically divided them into these different groups. There were um, we're looking for financial distress, earnings manipulation and fraud because you don't want to own those sort of companies. Um, then we'd look for valuation. So how do you find the cheapest which things are the most undervalued? Does price to book work, for example? Mm -hmm. Is price to free cash flow a better metric? Is enterprise value on EBIT a better metric? And um, then we look for quality metrics. Like, Can you find, do they, do they earn good margins on what they sell? Do they earn a lot of money on their assets? Are those things important? And we built that into a model. And that model um, now trades as an ETF called Quantitative Value, QVAL, um, run by Wes's firm. And for full disclosure, do you own any shares in the ETF that you said earlier, QVAL? I don't own any QVAL. Mm -hmm. um, in the process of doing that, I found this sort of interesting phenomena, phenomenon. It's repeated over and over again that um, these really junky companies, really unpopular companies, companies with bad um, reputations are the ones that outperform. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make any sense because you can find these lists of the most admired companies. Those companies tend to underperform you know, the least admired or the spurned companies. Um, Morningstar produces this rating of companies with different moats, which is how defensible the, um, the business is. And so, you know, Buffett is always looking for companies with moats, which is competitive advantage. Morningstar, I think, has the best, um, the best methodology for identifying these moats. And so they divide them into a wide moat group, which is the, the best, uh, the strongest moat, a narrow moat, which has a moat, but maybe it's not that defensible, and then mm -hmm. no moat, which has, you know, their cyclicals and their difficult companies to invest in for the most part. If you test the way that those perform, mm -hmm. wide moat tests the worst, narrow moat tests better, and no moat mm -hmm. tests the best, which makes no sense, mm -hmm. but it's a valuation story. In all of these things, it's a valuation story. If you find, if you buy the deepest value, you'll outperform, and, Everybody says, well, that's a great idea. And then they go to look at the companies that are in the deepest value portfolios and they're really hard to buy. They're junky companies. So I wanted to write that up. And so I wrote a book called Deep Value, came out in 2014, discussing that phenomenon um, and discussing the reasons why those companies tend to outperform. And it's because you tend to find them at the bottom of their business cycle mm -hmm. and they look really bad and they're really, really cheap. And then you get both uh, improvement in the business cycle. Management's not sitting around on their hands doing nothing. Management tries to improve the business. It's undervalued. So all of those things together lead to pretty good performance. And that was deep value. Gotcha. All right. So there's a lot to unpack right there. And we, we've actually unpacked a little bit of that in, yeah. in some of our previous interviews. But, you know, to, to kind of follow up on, on where we're at today, you know, and, and I'll come back to a few things that you brought up during your intro. And it's, you know, again, I think for those who may have missed our, our last interview, um, you didn't talk yet about the acquirers multiple, both the book and also now the website. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the book and then, 
you know, why did you leverage the book into a stock screen or on your website? So Deep Value um, was an expensive book. It's $85 book by Wiley. I have no control over that. And it's, it's written sort of, it's an academic type. Uh, uh, it's like a quasi textbook type book. And uh, that limits the amount that can, people don't want to spend that amount of money, don't want to buy mm-hmm. a book written in that way. So I wrote uh, a much simpler version of the book that's a much, uh, sells for a much lower price. That's the Acquirer's Multiple, which came out in December 2017. Mm-hmm. Basically, that, that collects all of the research that I've done from my other books and describes it. Uh, it's written to a fifth grade level, which is really hard to do, but it's short sentences, short words. So it's supposed to be very easy to read. <laughs> and uh, it explains those ideas. And I, I was inspired by Joel Greenblatt's book, uh, The Little Book That Beats the Market, because he describes in there this magic formula, which is mm-hmm. basically the Buffett strategy that I was talking about before. And I found his screener. Um, when I started out, when I read his book, I found his screener in about 2006. And I used to use it. I'd go through and find the things that were um, cheap and thought, I thought might be taken over because that's always been my bias for really undervalued stocks. Um, and I was aware of the research that... And it, it's, it's common research that if you take his strategy and you take that, the wonderful companies at fair prices, so the wonderful company part is the very high return on invested capital, if you eliminate that metric, if you don't look for the better companies, if you just look for the cheapest companies, you get better returns. Again, you get higher raw returns, you get higher risk-adjusted returns. The reason for that might be that those high return on invested capital companies tend to be closer to the top of their business cycle than Mm -hmm. businesses uh, that are suffering. And so if you given the choice between the two, you, you buy a cheap company that's suffering, it'll tend to do better than a cheap company that's closer to the top of its earnings cycle. Mm-hmm. It might just be the account might, might make it look like it's more profitable than it will be in the future. So combining those two things together, I wanted to create a screener that people could use because it's hard to find those sort of stocks. There aren't a lot of sites that will help you find junky undervalued stocks because everybody wants the, the really high quality stuff. I'm purely interested in performance. Uh, I, want, I want to beat the market. I want to do it by a wide margin. I'm prepared to buy ugly looking companies to do it. So if you want a list of really ugly companies, they're on the acquirersmultiple.com. Gotcha. So I, I wanted to actually skip ahead to a question because it's one of these quantitative metrics that you mentioned that is vital to the, the screener and to the acquirers multiple. And that as you said, the return on invested capital, ROIC. You know, so it, it's also kind of, it's sometimes highly regarded, regarded as the metric to analyze a company's capital allocation performance. You know, so can you provide, you know, I wanted to take a step back, you know, provide some more detail on ROIC, what it means, and then also, again, why it's important to look at. It's a profitability metric. Mm-hmm. And it's profitability scaled to the assets in the business that are actually employed in the business so it backs out some other things so there might be some excess cash or some other things that shouldn't be counted towards the assets of the business so you look at what what assets are required to operate this business and then how much money does it make from those assets and all else being equal you want the company that makes the most amount of money because a company that produces higher profits on those assets if it reinvests in that business mm-hmm. it'll produce higher profits again and it's got mm-hmm. more money to reinvest so you're often confronted with two types of businesses there are companies that have very low returns on invested capital and they need to reinvest in the business they've got maintenance capex requirements they've got 
Um, they've got some growth requirements. And a lot of businesses can't earn more than uh, they need to sort of stay in business, so they never throw off any free cash. Mm-hmm. And they usually sell at a deep discount to the capital that's invested in them, which is appropriate because they're not great businesses. And on the other hand, you have wonderful businesses that's that throw off enormous amounts of capital, um, don't require a great deal of reinvestment, and those are good businesses to own because they can grow. It's profitable growth when they do it, and they throw off lots of cash flow in the process. The problem that you always find is that the really good businesses don't have a lot of reinvestment opportunities simply because they don't need a lot of money. So they. I was just, just going to ask that. You know, it seems like they, you'd have a, for the better businesses, you'd have a lower ROIC, correct? Well, the better businesses have a very high return on invested capital, but they, their ability to reinvest is limited. I see. Okay. But that's not necessarily a problem if they're throwing off cash all the time. They're reinvesting to the extent that they need to, growing mm-hmm. rapidly. That's a good thing to find. They're really, really hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the ones that are less good, um, you want them to throw off cash because you don't want it all reinvested in the business, but they right. need it reinvested in the business, so it's often tied up in that kind of business. So um, I... I uh, understand why you would like to use return on invested capital. It's a really good metric and you want a company that does do those things. The problem is that everybody else who's a competitor of those companies wants those profits as well because that's that's a, a way to make a lot of money. So you move into that. So adjacent co- companies in adjacent industries, competitors, substitutes come in and they compete away those very high profits when they make them. Um, and that competition for those profits drives down the return on invested capital, so it mean reverts. So there, there are studies that have been done. Michael Malbison has an excellent one where he looks at, say, the top 1,000 companies and he divides them into five buckets. And the top bucket would be the companies that have the highest return on invested capital and the bottom bucket have the lowest return on invested capital and they tend to lose money. And then you've tracked the performance of those companies over 10 years and you find that the highest return on capital tends towards the mean, the lowest return tends down towards the mean, Mm. the lowest return on capital trends up towards the mean. And so all else being equal, you want those companies that are trending up towards the mean because those companies are growing earnings and invested capital and they're improving over time. And so the valuation discount that you find at the start closes Mm-hmm. towards intrinsic value and intrinsic value is growing. So that's sort of, it's, a, it's not a great business, but we're not really necessarily trying to pick the best businesses, we're trying to pick undervalued businesses. Mm-hmm. And we, if we can find something that's undervalued and improving, that's, that's a fantastic place to be invested. So in your experience, I mean, what type of companies would you say fall into that category? Is there any one type of company from a particular sector that tend to be the ones that most of the market, let's say, overlooks or tends to always undervalue and yet, you know, they're still rising towards towards that mean? Well, it's funny. It's, it's, it's several different types of businesses. Often it's cyclicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so basic materials is very cyclical. You'll find that they, when they're, when they're going very well, everybody extrapolates the earnings off over the horizon mm-hmm. up and then they disappoint and so they're crushed. And on the other side, they, they look like they'll never make money again. Those mines, whatever it might, the case might be, mm-hmm. they look like they'll never, with the commodity prices below what it costs them to pull it out of the ground, they look mm-hmm. like terrible businesses. But there's a cycle, they come back. The other thing is, whatever is the hot thing five years ago or 10 years ago, people get very, dis- so if, if something is hot, it becomes very, very expensive. Um, people get really disappointed <laughs> 
mm-hmm. when they don't deliver or they just don't live up to the expectations because the expectations are so high. So they get sold down, even though, you know, five years ago, we all thought it was a really wonderful business, but now that it hasn't quite lived up to expectations, which were impossible. It was never going to meet those expectations everywhere. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. So I love those kind of... I collect a lot of things that were very popular five or ten years ago because they get very cheap. And then mm-hmm. over time, the market sort of loses its distaste for that thing. You know, you burnt me once, I'm not going to let you burn me again. Mm-hmm. But then they realize, you know, it wasn't the thesis, the original thesis was right. It was a good business. It's just that it wasn't as good as we all thought it was going to be. And mm-hmm. it's still a good business. And now that everybody's pricing it as if it's a terrible business, now it's a really good investment. Mm. So it, it's interesting. You know, I, 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 I'm feeling like there's a bit of a juxtaposition because on one hand, you know, you have your traditional value investors who, you know, you want to find those good, boring businesses that are always, you know, steadily growing in their profitability. And yet those sometimes tend to be the same businesses that everybody always looks at and you get kind of this confirmation bias and it results in the in the value of the companies becoming a little bit more overvalued. And yet here you're saying right now is that, you know, I'm, it might be interesting to look at some of these more cyclical sector. Well, I'm not saying you are saying to look at that, but, but as part of this thesis that, that um, the gentleman you said earlier uh, was discussing is that there's some of these more cyclical businesses and maybe prior, you know, hot sectors now four or five years later that now become interesting because they're priced terribly. So really for you, it doesn't really matter the sector. At the end of the day, it comes down to valuation. 100%. So I'm sector agnostic. I'll buy financials. I'll buy basic materials. Um, It doesn't... And they're they're traditional... Insurers, they're traditionally... Mm -hmm. Buffett makes most of his money from an insurer, but Mm -hmm. a lot of value investors shy away from insurance because there are lots of different types of insurance, but life insurance is basically a commodity business. And then there Mm -hmm. are different types of insurance that they have these catastrophic losses every now and again. And they're hard to value. So what, what, I don't understand. What's, what's the, like, I've been doing this podcast now for four years and, or almost four years. And it seems like there's sometimes that disconnect where, you know, I'll, I'll interview guys who are just like, or I'll interview guys and girls that say, you know, look, I don't even touch basic material. I don't even touch healthcare. You know, I just want to understand the businesses that I can understand. But, you know, if you're just looking at the valuation, I mean, that kind of leaves open everything. You know, so right. what 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 is that disconnect? Is it just that, you know, even though there's all this published work about, you know, finding companies that, you know, are just undervalued and it can be across any sectors. And yet, you know, you have people that are more disciplined that'll say, well, I just don't even touch that. You know, what what's that disconnect there? There are several things going on. I think mm-hmm. one of them is Buffett says invest in your circle of competence, which is the stuff mm-hmm. that, you know, so people don't want to get outside the things right. that they know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, you. You, you're around for a long time. There's no reason why you can't extend into other areas and learn other areas. The other thing is that people don't like owning, um, you know, if it turns out... The, the thing is you buy a lot of these junky stocks. It's a 50-50 coin flip, roughly, mm-hmm. if they work out. Now, I like those odds because everybody's pricing these as if they're going to zero. Mm-hmm. So 50-50 is a great outcome, I think. And if you yeah. can get enough of an upside bounce out of the ones that work, which is what tends to happen... They're already priced for oblivion. 
So if oblivion is the, it, you know, is, the, is the end result, then you haven't really paid that much for them. Mm-hmm. But if they turn around and frequent, 50% of the time they do, the returns are spectacular. And so you've got this asymmetric risk return. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I think it's a good place to be. And even then it only takes one. But it can be embarrassing, <laughs> right. It, but it, it can be embarrassing. You know, everybody says that this is a dumb idea. Mm. I put it in the portfolio knowing that everybody else says it's a dumb idea, like kind of thinking it's a dumb idea too. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out it was a dumb idea. <laughs> and that happens like half the time. So, so you don't want to, that's embarrassing to be caught with, you know, an ugly stock in the portfolio. But it's worth doing because if everybody, if professional value investors think it's a dumb idea, it's, it's really, really cheap, <laughs> which is where I like to fish, you know, really, really cheap stocks. I mean, that's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, look, the, the subtitle of your book is How the Billionaire Contrarians of Deep Value Beat the Market, you know, and, and really, in essence, kind of what you're saying is that you are a contrarian, you know, in, in some respects. Well, not, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, David Einhorn, very well-known value investor, billionaire uh, value investor. So he's one of the guys I would call a billionaire contrarian. He started out his first investment in his, in his fund was a net net, mm-hmm. which is a company that's trading for less than the net current asset value, deducting all the other liabilities that the company has. And then it's trading at a discount to that value, which is very, very cheap stock. Mm-hmm. So he had enormous returns out of that one. And that was what started his... Uh, his run to where he is today. So my, my next question, I want to follow up on the, your previ- previous comment regarding uh, Einhorn. And, you know, this happens to be, and, and actually in all of what you just uh, previously said, and, I, and it's something that's an integral part of the microcap investor experience, and that's having to just be okay with there being a few hairs right. within the company. So I have to ask you, you know, what, what are some of the hairs that you're okay with? So there can be a lot. I mean, if you, sure, think yeah. about, if you think about the way that I've read the way that Buffett invests, he has, ment- he has probably mentally or written down somewhere, he has a, more likely mentally, he has a list of things that he doesn't want to see. He wants mm-hmm. good management. He wants, uh, you know, sensible control of the capital structure. You don't want them issuing shares all the time. You want them buying back stock at the appropriate time. These are things that I want too. I think management is, is harder to handicap. I'm more of a sort of Graham type investor. Where he, Graham says the problem, with, um, the problem with assessing management separate from the performance of the business is you're kind of counting twice. You know, how do you assess management? You've got to look at the performance of the business. Mm-hmm. Then you look at the performance of the business and it's good. Well, therefore, management's good. <laughs> but they might just be the beneficiaries of a nice... Um, right. of a happy time in the They're business cycle. They're execu- just executing the strategy too. You right. Know, like- not rocket science. So uh, I am less, uh, I, if the valuation is there and I think that they're doing the right thing, if they're buying back stock or they're not issuing too much stock, if they're paying down debt, if none of those, uh, none of those fraud or earnings manipulation or um, financial distress, if none of that's present but they're mm-hmm. very, very cheap and they're generating cash flow and buying back stock, then uh, that's my favourite sort of position to buy. I buy that all day long. Got it. I have to ask about share buybacks right now because that's actually been in the news a lot recently. So what, what's going on? Why is there this now big uproar for more regulation on share buybacks? I mean, what, what's going on here? It's very odd. So I think there are two uh, arguments about share buybacks and both of them are wrong. <laughs> I've got, this, I've got a, a different view, which is, uh, I hate to keep on going back to Buffett, but it's probably closer to Buffett's view. So there's one view that if you're buying back stock that money would be otherwise invested in the business and so that's costing jobs by not doing that 
Um, I think that if a company can reinvest in its business, they tend to do that. Right. Buybacks tend to be the last thing that they do. And then from an investment standpoint, there's this, uh, if you look at the aggregate performance of buybacks, they tend to underperform. And the reason is that the that most investors in businesses, most, most managers in businesses tend to be like most extrapolation investors, most sort of, they call them naive extrapolation investors in the, in the literature. But basically what that means is that when the stock's doing very well, they buy a lot. Mm-hmm. And the stock's cheap, they don't touch it at all. They don't buy enough or they don't have the capital there mm-hmm. to buy it. So if you look at it in aggregate, buybacks look like they're destroying value. But I'm not necessarily talking about doing a buyback at any price. I'm saying mm-hmm. I'm al- I already think that the stock is cheap. I already think that it's throwing off cash flow. Now I want to see what management does. If management's buying back stock that's cheap, that's going to perform very well. And the, the logic is pretty simple. It's if you, if you have a rough estimate of intrinsic value for your business and you're buying back at a, at a premium to that intrinsic value, you're going to be tearing up value. You're tearing up money for the people who hang around. Mm-hmm. If you're buying at a discount to that intrinsic value, you're concentrating that intrinsic value into fewer and fewer shares and increasing it on a per share basis. Mm-hmm. That's a great business to be invested in because right. doing nothing else, tidying up their share structure, they're improving the value of your underlying holding. So buybacks are good. But buybacks are like a scalpel, like they're, you know, in the right hands, they're, they're, they're a wonderful tool. In the wrong hands, they're dangerous. Right. I mean, I feel like that's why they're, I mean, would you say that that is one reason some people are calling it like a way, it, it's almost like market manipulation in a sense, because, you know, like you said, if the company's doing well and they're buying back stock, then, you know, what's, why? You There's know? no justification at a premium to intrinsic value. And most companies trade most of the time at a big premium to intrinsic value. Or in a market like this, they certainly do. So there's an enormous amount of money spent on buybacks mm-hmm. now will likely um, be money that is lost um, in the, over the next sort of 10 years, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so going back to, to, to acquirers multiple... And this is one question I, I wish I'd asked in a previous interview, but I, I'm going to ask it now. And, and prior to using the acquirer's multiple stock screener, you know, how would you previously go about finding undervalued activist and takeover targets? So I had, I had two approaches. One was to uh, simply look at the valuation. And I used uh, the magic formula screener, Joel Greenblatt's magic formula screener, and I'd look for the very cheapest ones in there. Because his screener ranked on both valuation and that return on invested capital. And so I would often find things in there that, that no doubt they were very good businesses, but they were also very expensive businesses mm. and too expensive for a value investor to invest in. Um, and the other way was just to reverse engineer it and start with a filing. So 13D filing made uh, on the SEC Edgar website indicates that the that the investor who has gone over 5% of the share capital intends to do something active with the share. So they either intend to bid for more or try to get them to liquidate or take it over. Or they, There's a list of things that they might be doing. So that indicates something might happen. So for me, that was a very profitable place to find, just to look at the filing, mm-hmm. see who the filer was. Is it Starboard? You know, Starboard's going to do a very good job. Then look at the underlying stock. Likely it's cheap. Mm-hmm. and then buy that and then just ride their coattails while they did all the hard work. I just sat there passively. So I, I did an episode at the very beginning of uh, when I started this podcast all about stock screeners and educating uh, my audience as to what it is, why, why to use it, and, and how it's also the importance of it in the discovery phase. 
You know, so, but, but I want to really ask you because, you know, your website, you have requires multiple screener. You know, how often do you use a stock screener? And then why is it a tool that goes beyond just discovery? So I use it, uh, it's an integral part of my process. It's the start of the process for me. Uh, I really do like the, the portfolio that it produces. And mm -hmm. I, I like the fact that if you, if you look at it, it, it is kind of a junky, sickening portfolio. It's no, there's no mystery why any of the stocks are in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. you, know, you look at them and you'll know that it's a cheap company, it's a bad industry. You, you'll be able to find the answer why it's in there pretty quickly. The, um, the challenge for most investors is that if they cherry pick out of that screen, they'll tend to underperform the, the performance of the screen. That's, that's a reasonably well-known um, phenomenon and the, 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 the golden rule of it, the way that it's expressed is that uh, even experts underperform simple statistical models mm -hmm. and this is a simple statistical model because it's been tested through data um, and they, they will continue to underperform simple statistical models even with the benefit, even able to use the simple statistical model. So the example of it that, um, that's always given is this uh, Dr Goldberg, he um, found that there were people who were admitted to hospital and they might either have depression or psychosis and apparently they can appear fairly similar mm. on admission and then there's a subsequent diagnosis made once they're stabilised a week or, mm -hmm. or several days later and they're able to look at what the initial diagnosis was and compare it to the final diagnosis. Hmm. So he said, it's 50-50, we're getting as many, we're flipping a coin here, we're getting as many wrong as we're getting right. So he came up with this little questionnaire guide that he handed out to um, students and to experienced clinicians. And he said, just follow the guide and then record what the guide's answer is and then you can make your own diagnosis, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So he found that in the first instance, um, the guide by itself delivered the best results. Mm. And the experienced clinicians didn't do as well as the guide and the inexperienced clinicians didn't do as well as the experienced clinicians perhaps as you'd expect. So then the second time through he said, I want you to follow the guide as closely as you possibly can. He found that that improved everybody's performance. Mm. Experienced clinicians got better, inexperienced clinicians got better almost so they were performing as well as the experienced clinicians but the simple statistical model all by itself still did the best. So basically what that meant is that experienced clinicians take a good tool and underperform what the tool does all by itself. And that's true of investing. It's true of lots of different, um, uh, lots of different places where you could use a model like that. And so in investing, it just means if you have a screen and you know that it's, it works and it's been tested, you should follow it as closely as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to follow it as closely as you possibly can, you know? Because does that mean once a week or every day or once a month? Because I, I always used to think sometimes that you'd want to do it, especially in microcaps, is after earnings, you know, and see what companies are still in the screen, what companies may have now phased themselves out, maybe new companies that are now in there. You know, so how would you answer that? There are several things going on. One of them is that value tends to be a fairly slow-moving beast. So... Mm -hmm. Um, if, you, if you find an undervalued stock, it can take up to five years for it to reach its, to get back to its fair valuation. So the first year, the bulk of the move is made, but then it continues to deliver uh, unexpected returns beyond the market for up to five years. So value is a, is a, a strategy that you don't need to rebalance that frequently. Mm. Um, 
I like to rebalance it on about a quarterly basis because there are, for that reason, you get a new round of results. Um, you'll see that the results are, you know, the results might be so bad it falls out of the screen and that happens regularly. If it's down and the results are bad, sell it, take the tax loss, reinvest into the next, um, next best opportunity in the screen. The other thing that, in, in terms of just timing, there's a very pronounced January effect. And so basically what happens is there's a whole lot of tax loss selling in December. Mm -hmm. That's a good time for a value investor to be buying and to be getting set. And then you see this January effect where there's a lot of outperformance. And so you want to be the beneficiary, you want to capture that outperformance. So you need to make your rebalance at the end of the year before the year starts. So late December is a good time to rebalance and then whatever the quarterly corresponding quarters are, quarter ends for that purpose. Mm -hmm. I just I just have to ask, just, I'm, I'm curious as to your perspective on this is, especially in microcaps, do you think it's a disservice that it's quarterly reporting? I mean, it, it seems that, especially if you were to do a screen for, for microcaps, if you were to do it on a quarterly basis to, to do your rebalancing, you're going to have a lot of fluctuation, you know, unless it's maybe the core, you know, maybe the core businesses that, you know, everybody already knows about that might already be way overvalued, you know, so that, how, how would you answer that? You do. I mean, you, you, there is the, the portfolio turns over roughly 50% every rebalance state. Right. And that's, you know, hearkening back to what I said before about half of the companies being a bad bet. I mean, that's, that's, that's the nature of it. You, you're always buying these things where there are, there is some question about whether it's, is this a good position or not? It's down a lot, probably down for good reason. Mm -hmm. Let's take a position. Let's take a little position and then see what happens over the next quarter. If they start improving, then we're off to the races and we should keep on watching that position as it improves over time. If it continues deteriorating, it's to the mm -hmm. point that it's no point holding onto it anymore. And that's an opportunity to sell out and try and find another one. So you're, you're sort of always trying to um, iterate the portfolio towards a holding of all of the very best undervalued stuff that you can possibly find. And part of that process is rebalancing in and out. I've, I know from working in a small, a smaller business, a smaller listed company, that uh, the reporting is incredibly intrusive. It's, it's a lot of work for the company to get that done. But that's the cost of being publicly listed. Right. So... You know, it sounds like a lot of that advice is good for maybe the trader mentality, you know, because staying in, let's say you take a small position or whatever your position size is for a quarter and then it rebalances and take the tax loss, you get out of that, you know, but what, what would you say then for the long-term investor, you know, people that are usually holding companies that they end up buying for, you know, in that two-year time frame? For minimum. For, well, for, even for investors, I regard myself as an investor rather than a trader. Mm -hmm. um, but I still think you need to be reading, you need to be looking at each quarterly result and determining whether the business is improving or deteriorating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's, it's hard, you know, from quarter to quarter, it, there might not be any information. That's, that's probably the very vast bulk of positions. There's no additional information in a new mm -hmm. quarter. So... It's either it's undervalued, there's no new information, it continues to be undervalued, you just keep on holding through that period. And so the portfolio does tend to have, I mean, I've held positions for six years in the portfolio because every time I rebalanced, they were undervalued, mm -hmm. even though in some instances they were doing quite well. So, um, you know, I've owned health insurers that every year they were one of the, among the most undervalued positions in the screen just because people have been so nervous about health insurance 
uh, over the last sort of five or ten years. I mean, people continue to be nervous now, but it was a political topic for a long time. And so they, mm. were, they were all cheap, but the underlying businesses are actually very good. They're growing at a very rapid rate. They're making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So the, the, it, that was one of the rare instances where even though they were deeply undervalued, mm-hmm. the valuation couldn't actually keep up with how good the businesses were. They were always ahead of their mm-hmm. valuation, which is very unusual for, mm-hmm. for the type of investing that I do. But they were sort of they were the businesses that I held for a long time, checking every quarterly rebalance mm-hmm. day. So what type of discipline does it take then? Where let's say you've had that company that's been undervalued for quarter after quarter after quarter, and then you see that, oh, you know, you, well, you already probably saw that it had a spike in its stock price. So the valuation, you know, clearly now is, might be outside of it. You know, how did you develop that discipline to say, okay, I'm going to sell now, even if it continues to go up, I'm going to sell now, you know, because I, I feel like that's something that a lot of investors, you know, it, it's a tough one to swallow because you're like, ah, oh, it's going to keep going. It's going to keep going. But, uh, okay. You know. It's the hardest thing for yeah. investors. It's the hardest thing for value investors in particular because you know you buy it. You, you know when to buy it. That's the mm-hmm. easy part. You buy it when you think it's really cheap. But then, you know, you get some good returns out of it. If you've been in it for a long period of time, um, you know the business pretty well. Mm-hmm. And it might just get ahead of its valuation. And that's a difficult decision to make. Do you sell out this far ahead of valuation mm-hmm. and then... Um, you know, know that if you hold it, you're going to have a period of reduced returns mm-hmm. and you might lose some ground. But are you hoping that the underlying valuation eventually catches up to the price? And that's for very long-term buy and hold investors, that's a difficult decision to make. I'm not in that camp. I think if, if it gets ahead of the valuation, I can look and see that there's an enormous opportunity set of better risk-adjusted, better higher returning stocks. And so I, I'll sell out and buy back in. But frequently what happens is, so I, I had this particularly with that health insurance stock. I sold out because it got a takeover offer. 12 months later, it was trading well below the offer price and it was still cheap and growing and it wasn't entirely clear whether the offer would go through or not. Mm-hmm. So I, re, I bought the position again. Um, and then ultimately the takeover didn't go ahead, but it didn't matter because the stock was so cheap. It, it performed really well over the next 18 months. And that's mm-hmm. that's... That's something that can happen too. So I'm not afraid to rebuy old positions. I'll rebuy them higher, mm-hmm. which I did in that instance um, because the stock had gone ahead, the bid had gone ahead as well, but the, it was still trading below where the bid was. Right. So one, another question I had then, and you've more or less alluded to this pretty much through our entire talk here, but I wanted to ask you know, straight up, how does your deep value strategy, the, the one that you outlined in your fir- first book, how does that go hand in hand with the mission of the acquirers multiple to help find undervalued activists and takeover targets? The, uh, so deep value describes the mechanics of the acquirers multiple. So the acquirers multiple is just a metric. Uh, it's one single metric for finding deeply undervalued stocks, but there are lots of different ways to find that. Um, price to tangible book value is a very popular one. Price to mm-hmm. book value has sort of been a very popular academic measure of value that's basically stopped working. And there are a variety of reasons. One, it's either too popular or there have been some incremental changes in the accounting rules over time that mean that it's not that useful as a metric for sort of determining whether something's expensive or cheap. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem to work anymore and it's just gone through its worst 10-year period in the data. So it's likely that that stopped working. Price to tangible book value does still work. Um, so I, I think deep value describes the philosophy and that is that sort of 
trying to buy things that maybe don't look as good, whereas you would say that uh, the Buffett-type stocks are, you know, they're very good businesses that are doing very well and you just mm-hmm. try and buy them at, a, at fair value and that'll deliver the good returns for you. But um, deep value is buying stuff that's junky and, and not looking great. And the acquirer's multiple is one way of doing that. And the website just provides a list of stocks in the US that, uh, that meet those criteria. Mm-hmm. So an- another follow-up question I have to that is, you know, and this is more of a general question, and it has to do a lot with, I'd say, on the behavior side. And, you know, as, as a retail investor, you know, I'm not talking about institutions, but as, as an individual retail investor, it, do you have an advantage in having an edge in your investing strategy? Or would you say you're better off doing more or less the same things that everybody else is doing? Like, let's say everybody is going off the acquirer's multiple screen and having that confirmation bias like, oh, good, I'm, I'm, in, the right, I'm in the right venue right now. You know? I don't know that everybody's using the acquirer's multiple well, screen. Well, as an I, example. <laughs> I'll just say that it's been a, one of the reasons that value works is that value doesn't work for extended periods of time. So it has this regular underperformance and they call it tracking error, which is just basically if you can invest in the S&P 500 through an index for periods of time, a value strategy like this will underperform. Mm-hmm. What you're hoping is that over a long, if, you're, if your investing horizon is, is 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, then over that long period of time, it's very likely that value does much, much better than mm. the S&P 500. But there will be five or 10 year periods through that full uh, time period where it's going to want to perform. It's going to be losing money in a period where the market's doing very well. So the late 1990s was one example of that. The stock market was incredibly strong. Value strategies were losing money. So Buffett was the subject of many um, magazine covers at the time. Has he lost his touch? (laughs) Um, And then he came roaring back. But we're now back in another one of those extended losing periods where, you know, the best investment in the world, the best asset class in the world over the last decade has been the S&P 500. And you can invest in the S&P 500 for basis points, five basis points, maybe less than that. Mm Any hedging or any diversification outside of that meant that means that you've underperformed that single asset class. Value is just another one of those asset classes that it's maybe not an asset class, but an idiosyncratic return stream that looks different from the S&P 500. So I think that that's what keeps value working because right now it's not particularly popular to say that you're a value. There aren't many people <laughs> holding up their hands as value investors. It's hard to name a group of young star value investors. There's a lot of guys from a generation before me, Einhorn, Hackman, mm-hmm. who are struggling, Pabri, Spears, I don't know exactly how they're going, but that sort of generation who came out of the early 2000s, there's really been no one since then. Um, you know, I'm part of the value investing philosophy is this sort of belief in mean reversion. I think the strategy will mean revert. Mm-hmm. And I can look at the, the data now says that the most expensive um, portfolios, the growth portfolios, the glamour portfolios, as they're called in the academic literature, are incredibly expensive, are historically mm-hmm. expensive right mm-hmm. now. The value portfolios are not historically cheap, but relative to those glamour portfolios are at a historically widespread. And the last time the spread got as wide as this was the early 2000s. It did get a lot wider because the dot-com bubble was so profound, mm-hmm. was so pronounced in the data. But right now that the, the the spread between the valuation of the most expensive high growth glamour portfolios and the cheapest portfolios is very wide and it's good for anybody. Long, short value, I think, is going to do extremely well mm-hmm. over the next five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. 
so in the microcap space, you know, how would you say, how, how do you think investors can utilize the strategy that we, we talked about previously about how, you know, deep value goes hand in hand with your acquirers multiple with the, with the metric, you know, how, how can they utilize the strategy to their benefit and, and is it possible? It absolutely is possible. It's possibly the best area to be simply because it's, it's very hard for professional investors to get too much money in there. So it's very hard for them to um, make much money out of that area from management fees and things mm-hmm. like that. So really the way to get performance out of that is by investing directly into those stocks and getting some really good returns. So I have a screen at the small and micro cap screen. It looks at the, the smallest 50% of stocks, which sounds like a very big pool of stocks, but um, just the nature of the, uh, the, the shrinkage in the number of listed companies, there are mm. fewer and fewer around. So they tend to be, I think the market cap cutoff cut is about $300 million. Mm-hmm. And you find some fantastic businesses in there that are just too cheap or too small to get any attention from, you know, they can't, they don't fit into a Russell 2000. They're Mm. too small for even the Russell 2000, which is the smallest 2000 out of the largest 3000. So they tend to be quite small stocks at the very bottom in 2009, the smallest stock in the Russell 2000 had a market capitalization of $26 million. So these companies were too small for that. They were below that. So that was at the time, that's where I was investing in my, in my PA. That's where I wanted to invest. And I was mm-hmm. using not the acquirer's multiple, but I was using net nets, which is a, a comparable strategy trying to find very deeply undervalued stocks. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, it is very good for, it's a good place for individual investors because mm-hmm. you, you don't have much competition. It's a good place because you can reach out to the management teams and talk to them mm-hmm. and they'll talk to you and you can go to conferences uh, like the one that you host and uh, talk to the management team. Some of them are cheap, and I, I love finding a stock on my screener and a management team in the room. Nice. Because you, know, you can talk to them and say, you guys are very cheap, what are you doing? <laughs> and they can say, well, it's, it's not fair, or we're buying back our stock, or right. we think we're going to make an announcement, something's going to happen. So I, I think it's a good place. If you, if you love investing and you want to make some money out of um, investing, it's really, really hard to do it in a large cap space. You can't call up Tim Cook at no. Apple and uh, ask him about the new iPhone or something like mm-hmm. that. But you can reach out to a lot of these smaller companies mm-hmm. and talk to them. And you can find some genuine, um, not, not so much market-moving information that should be disclosed, but you can understand those businesses, have it explained to you. They're simpler businesses for the most part, simple capital structure, simple business focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. You can value them and you can find that they generate pretty good returns. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a perfect transition from what you just uh, alluded to is that at our upcoming conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, I'm happy to announce that Tobias will be our keynote speaker at the Planet Microcap Showcase, uh, which again is April 30 through May 2nd, 2019 uh, at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Uh, Tobias will be doing a uh, keynote presentation at the conclusion of day two on May 1st. And... Uh, Tobias, tell me, what can attendees expect to hear when you do present? I talk about um, the the drivers of returns for value investment. So I talk about a lot of what we canvassed earlier, but I I like to... Buffett is the most well-known value investor. Probably we wouldn't know the term value investing if it wasn't for Warren Buffett. And so a lot of people have read his letters, um, which are excellent, and learned that style of investment, which is one, only one type of value investment. There are mm-hmm. other types of value investing. 
And I don't think Buffett gets enough credit for being the incredible genius that he is. For those of us who are mm-hmm. mere mortals without the sort of um, photographic memory and facility with numbers that he has and the long history of business analysis that he has, there are simpler, easier ways of doing it. And I think that deep value is one of those ways where you're just looking for, if it's cheap on a balance sheet basis, if, it's, if the business is undervalued, if you think that you know, if, if surviving the next year or five years is a big win for this business, and I can kind of handicap survival reasonably well, or I'm prepared to buy a position in something where it's a coin flip, then I, I think that that's where really good returns can be had, and you don't have to be able, you don't have to be a, uh, you don't have to have that wonderful ability of his to sort of analyse businesses. Mm-hmm. And I think the returns are very good, and I th- there's a lot of data and a lot of charts that I have that sort of demonstrate why that's the case and demonstrate that that unpopularity uh, phenomenon, how it manifests and how you can take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So everybody to register to uh, come to the conference and hear more about what Toby is going to be discussing in his keynote presentation, go to planetmicrocapshowcase.com where you can register. And uh, Toby, to close out here, you know where, where can my audience go and find more information about you, the acquirers multiple, and uh, maybe some of your other uh, musings? The Acquirers Multiple uh, website is acquirersmultiple.com um, and I'm on Twitter at uh, Greenback, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. It's a funny spelling. It means backed by Greenbacks was kind of the original idea with a little punked. You remember punked, the TV sure. show? That was, that was I thought it might have been an Australian thing. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get the E-D. Maybe the, uh, maybe the website wasn't available. I can't remember. <laughs> So, and then the books are all, if you go to Amazon and you search my name in Amazon, all of those books will come up. But the acquirersmultiple.com is where I spend most of my time. We write stuff for the Acquirers Multiple. We'll be doing a podcast series starting soon. We'll be interviewing lots of uh, managers in the space, trying to find out the little trick that they've figured out. How are they making money? Mm-hmm. How can we use that in our own investing? Perfect. Again, my name is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. Again, with me today has been Tobias Carlisle, the founder and editor of The Acquirers Multiple and the author of The Acquirers Multiple. Tobias, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Tobias, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.